You are listening to the Embassy Church Podcast, and here is today's message. God is so good. This is such an awesome song. I just, I love this song. It's one of my favorites because God is good. All my life, he has been faithful. Just as we were singing it, God reminded me of a time in my life. I'm 63, so I can, I can look back through 63 years, and there have been times that have been very black and very dark, but God was always with me. There, I remember a time where I was just out in the park, sitting at the park and, and staring off into the distance and just, and it was such a, I was in such a dark place. And I remember the thought, and this would be our enemy saying, you know, if you weren't alive anymore, it wouldn't hurt so much. And I remember thinking, that's probably true. And then God just, you know, God really didn't step in and say anything, but it never went past that point. I never really seriously contemplated it, but I did think about it. And I look back at that time now, and I know God was on that bench beside me. And I know he was keeping me. And um, he is so good. He is so good. And I remember when I was 25 or 30, um, knowing that God is good, but really not knowing that God is good. If you know, you know, like I can look back on my life and I can see where God has hand on his, had his hand on my life every single moment, even when I thought he didn't. And it's just an, such an awesome song. I just love it. Father, thank you for this morning. Father, thank you for, for cleaning my heart. Thank you, Lord, for taking my heart and getting rid of all the garbage that was in there. And Father, I pray this morning that, Holy Spirit, that you would somehow use my words to speak to people and to clean out hearts. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you. Thank you. Um, 11 months ago, it was in March, um, Marge and I started going out to Meath Park. When we went out to Meath Park, um, it was in a lot of fear because I had been through this situation before and it didn't turn out well. And I remember when um, Pastor Megan said, suggested it, I had a volcano blow up inside of me, and I said, absolutely not. Absolutely no way I'm putting myself in that spot again. Just ain't going to do it. Um, and then I realized that in saying that and in following through with it, it is basically saying God won't keep me. And even if it turns out exactly the same way, that God won't heal me. And I realized that the statement basically is, no, God, you don't know what you're doing, and I'm not going. So what I want to talk about this morning is, is insignificance and significance. And I'm talking from personal experience <laughs> from not that long ago. And I'm just going to share with you what God shared with me. So when we went to Meath Park... God spoke to me and said, although 
I was going out to minister to a group of people that were there. What he really wanted to do is minister to the town. He wanted the town, he wanted there to be a safe place in Meath Park for the town to gather to have coffee, for the town to gather to visit, for the town to gather just to gather where they would feel safe. He started speaking to me about that. And so we started thinking about how to do that. And we started talking as a board, how, how do we go about accomplishing that? And how do, we, how, do we, how do we do that, Lord? And so we thought, well, the, and I think this was God, to do that, we would have to get the town to trust us to start with the very first thing. And the only way to do that is to do community-orientated things without expecting anything in return. And so we started that. And the first one we did was in August. We did a barbecue. I put my barbecue in the back of the half ton, drove it to Meath Park. We um, spent $400 on burgers and all the stuff that goes with them and the cheese and, and the pop and the chips and the, all the stuff. We had about $800 in the church account, so we spent half of all the money we had on one Saturday afternoon. And, and I really f felt it was God asking us to do that, and I still think that. That was a Saturday. So Sunday I went, and I have no remembrance of what I preached on. I have no idea. But on the way home that day, my sister was at home, and she watched the service here online. That was the service that Sammy Robinson was here. You remember that service? Anybody remember that guy? He's pretty hard to forget. Um, <laughs> and he had prophesied to Megan that embassy would have money rolling in, like millions of dollars on its way. And my sister had watched it on, online, and she had told me about this because she was really excited. And inside of me, a volcano blew up because I had just spent half the church budget on a barbecue that fed 20 people. So we bought like $400 worth of food and fed 20 people. And I was, I was driving home and felt good about it. I really felt we did what God wanted us to do. And I wasn't discouraged about the 20, 20 people at all. But when I heard that there were millions of dollars coming here and I had spent half of the church budget on a barbecue, I really, what blew up inside of me was I am just insignificant. I am just out here in Meath Park. I have, you know, God really doesn't care. He has put me here because somehow I screwed up somewhere. And I have been moved out. That's not the truth, by the way. The truth is I was sent out. The truth is there were people there that needed the love of God. And God had picked me to go out there and love them. But driving home that day, that's not what was in my heart. I, I felt, and, and I don't know how to explain how I felt, because it was like, it was like a firecracker went off in my stomach. I mean, it was just horrible. But I did realize that it was something inside of me that was blowing up. It wasn't an attack from Satan, although it was demonic. It wasn't a specific attack from him that I needed to stop the car and call down fire upon the enemy and, and deal with it. I realized that it was something inside of me that God wanted to deal with. And it, it blew up to such an extent I couldn't ignore it. And so uh, 
I am going to share with you what God showed me over the next four weeks after that, because he dealt with me a lot, uh, you know, and, and, I, and I learned some things. Dictionary.com says insignificance is unimportant, trifling, or petty, too small to be important, of no consequence, influence, or distinction, without weight of character, contemptible, without meaning, and meaningless. That's exactly how I felt that day. <laughs> you know, that's a pretty good, pretty good definition. So, but as before I go on, I want to stress that insignificance is not humility. So we, I would, and I would do this, I did this my whole life, which is why it blew up so strong. I would, I didn't want to, I have proud, I didn't want to be proud at all. And the only way I knew to fight pride is to condemn myself and tell myself that I'm not worth anything, to tell myself, because then I wouldn't get proud about being worth something if I was worth nothing, right? And so I had spent my whole life telling myself that I was insignificant and I really wasn't, I was just not really worth much, you know? And, and, um, and I thought it was humility. I thought I was being humble. Not. <laughs> it's not. The Hebrew word for humility means to reject self-government and embrace the Lord's inworking of faith. So basically, when it says to reject self-government, that means I'm going to do what I'm going to do and no one's going to tell me not to. Self-governing of my life. So humility is getting rid of that totally, completely, and embracing that I am what the Lord wants me to be, and I'm going to do what God wants, and really what I want. I just have to change what I want to be what he wants so that I can do what I want. <laughs> um, so uh, God, and God does that. If you give God your heart and ask him to work in there, he'll do it. He'll take you up on it. And eventually, what you want does become what God wants. The thing you want the most is the thing God wants. And when God gives you the desires of your heart, it's when your desires line up with what he wants. Then you get the desires of your heart because your desires are what he wants. You know, um, it's not necessarily a new truck. Um, and that's a personal one too, by the way. Uh, <laughs> um, Biblical humility means believing what God says about you over anyone else's opinion, especially your own opinion. It's believing what God says about you even when you don't feel that way. Moses, it says in, I think, Numbers, one of those five books, it says that Moses was the most humble man on the earth at that time. I always thought that was funny seeing that Moses wrote that book. But anyway, <laughs> um, it's still the word of God. So Moses was not timid. Moses was not fearful. Moses stood up and he led those rebellious Israelites and they followed him. So um, Moses wasn't timid. Speaking of timidity, when the Bible says God has not given us a spirit of fear, that word fear means timidity. God has not given us a spirit of timidity. Humility, humility is not that. It's believing that what God says. When God, we'll, we'll, talk, we'll look at this a little bit later, but when God at, told Moses it's time to go back to Egypt, God, Moses knew that God was going back to Egypt with him. Biblical humility means believing God about you 
over your own opinion. And that's not the easiest thing to do. But it can be done. It can be done. It requires embracing who you are in Christ over who you are in the flesh. We have to find out what the blood of Jesus gives us over what the devil tells us that we don't have. To be biblical humble is to be so free of concern of your own ego that you unreservedly elevate those around you. You unreservedly elevate those that push your buttons. You unreservedly elevate those that drive you crazy. It's easy to elevate those that you love, that you connect with, you know, that you just always have a good time with. Humility will elevate those that you don't have a good time with. And that's kind of difficult. I understand that. It's a goal. Um, that I don't know if I reach that all the time either. Um, but it's what it is. Humility will strive to understand others. Insignificance will tell you that you're not worth being understood. So why bother? Humility means being, being willing to learn. And people who are humble listen because they're not intimidated by others' opinions. Because they know who they are. And they know what God has called them to do. Humility is believing what God says more than how you feel. So when you feel like you are worthless, and we all get there sometimes, then we believe what God says about us over what we feel about us. Insignificance will filter and twist God's words so that they're condemning. God's, God, God will say, Wayne, I love you so much. And insignificance will say, yeah, but not as much as Megan. Or not as much as, you know, you'll take what God says and it twists it so that it's hurtful. Insignificance will do that. Humility says, I am small, but my God is very big. So I'm going to go and speak and I'm going to do. Insignificance says, I'm kind of puny. Others are way more qualified. I don't want to screw it up. So I'm not going to do what God asked me to do. This was me to a T, honestly. I was so afraid of screwing something up that I wouldn't do anything at all. And here's the kicker. Insignificance says, God doesn't really know what he's doing to send me. So I'm not going to waste my time going. He won't stand with me on the waves, so I'm just going to stay in the boat. Jesus' grace isn't really sufficient after all. His power really isn't made perfect in my weakness like he says it is. So the, the bottom line of insignificance is a lie that he hasn't made you perfect, that he won't be with you. When it gets really, really hard, he's not going to be with you anymore. You're just going to be on your own. So when I went out to Meath Park in fear, insignificance said, you're just going to get hurt again. It's going to happen all over again. But I decided to believe that even if that did happen, God was going to be, it'll be okay because God will walk me through it. Worst case scenario happens, fine. God's going to be with me. It's going to be okay. And so humility is not insignificance. It is so far removed from it because insignificance is demonic and humility is godly. So different, so different. When you have a spirit of insignificance, now when I say that, I mean in a thought pattern of insignificance, a paradigm where that's always where your default mind goes. I'm not saying that you're possessed, okay? When you have a spirit of insignificance, you develop a hard heart 
for, for the sole reason of protecting yourself against the pain of feeling unwanted, unloved, and unworthy. And once you've developed this thought pattern, this paradigm, it affects your emotions and can lead to self-harm and an inability and unwillingness to care for yourself. That's in extreme measures. Insignificance leads to shame, which will become your identity. Because it will tell you that you aren't worth it, that you're not ever going to be worth it. And I remember, I don't know, <laughs> I think I've said this before. There were, we used to have a picture here. It was a picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it was a table that was set. Anybody remember that? So you have the table and you have the really ornate place settings and it goes off into infinity to a point. And there's a big light down there at the point. I would look at that always and insignificance would tell me that my place is at the end, not where Jesus is down there with Billy Graham and Moses and Elijah. And then he would use scripture and he would say, because Jesus himself said that when you go to a wedding feast, sit at the least important spot instead of the important one, because then you won't be embarrassed if they pick you up and move you from the important spot down. And so insignificance used that scripture and that picture. And every time I saw it, I felt absolutely unwanted. I really felt that I was like, Jesus died. It was like a auction sale where he had to take the whole basket of garbage to get the two or three he wanted. And I was just part of the garbage. And, and that's what insignificance will lead you to. And in the end, it will completely cancel the plan of God for your life because you will refuse to step into it. So, um, and then that becomes your identity. You become shame. Because once you realize you've done that, insignificance will tell you what an idiot you are and how bad you are and what a rotten Christian you are because you never stepped into what God told you to do. So insignificance will first tell you you're not worth it. And then when you realize that you made a mistake, it'll tell you how stupid you are that you didn't feel worth it. I know this personal experience. <laughs> um, shame is not a good thing. No, um, don't ever say shame on you to your kids because shame is demonic completely. Completely. So let's take a look at Saul. Here's a good example. Um, in 1 Samuel 9, chapter 18 to 21, I'll fill you in on the story because we're just going to look at a few verses. Um, Saul, like David, was just out in the field. Samuel came along. So uh, <laughs> Saul's dad had lost some donkeys. They had gotten out. They took off. Saul's dad sent Saul to find the donkeys. So him and his servant went looking for the donkeys. Couldn't find them anywhere. They were gone for days and couldn't find these donkeys. And finally, they got to this town and Saul said, you know, I think we better turn back and admit that we can't find them. Otherwise, my dad's going to start worrying about where I am. Well, his servant said, you know, this town we're in, there's a, there's a seer here. And... Maybe he can shed some light on this as to where the donkeys are, that we can go home with them. And Saul, um, Saul said, okay, but what do we give him? We've got to give him something. And his servant says, well, i got a little cash in my, my pocket here. We'll give him that. So they said, where do we find this guy? So they go into town and they ask about where Samuel is. Samuel is that guy. They're looking for Samuel. And they say, well, you know what? You're just behind him. He was just here. Just scoot on up there and you'll find him. 
so they did. So I'll start reading in verse 18. Just then Saul approached Samuel on the gateway and asked, can you please tell me where the seer's house is? Well, I'm that seer, Samuel replied. Go up to the place of worship ahead of me. We'll eat there together. And in the morning, I'm going to tell you what you want to know and send you on your way. And don't worry about those donkeys that were lost three days ago. They've been found. I am here to tell you that you and your family are the focus of Israel's hopes. Well, that blew Saul away. Saul replied, I am the only one from the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest tribe in Israel. My family is the least important of all the families of the tribe. Why are you talking to me like this? So Samuel, who is known as the prophet, the seer of the land, says, the hopes of Israel are pinned on your family. And he says, well, my tribe is the smallest in Israel. My family is the smallest in the tribe. I am the smallest in my family. Like, why in the world? Remember Gideon? Same thing, right? Um, why are you talking like this to me? Insignificance. He was feeling extremely insignificant and unworthy to be the hopes of Israel. So go to 1 Samuel 15. Well, and before we get there, he did crown Samuel king. Uh, Samuel did crown Saul king, but they couldn't find him. They had a coronation ceremony, and Saul was gone. Nope, I'm not going to be king. He was out of there. He went and hid on the dock, and, but they found him because he was, like, really tall. He couldn't really hide. Um, so they found him, and they dragged him back, and they made him king. And he did not want to be king because he did not think he could do it. So they made him king. And I don't know how long he is king before Samuel goes to him and says, okay, God wants you to um, take out the Amalekites. Because when Israel came into the land, the Amalekites attacked Israel. And now it's time for them to pay for that. And it's interesting, and this is just a side thought, that generations later, God still remembered. And it was time now to deal with it. So he told Saul... Go where the Amalekites are, kill them all. We don't want any of them left alive, none. We don't want any of their livestock left alive, nothing that the Amalekites own is to be left alive. And so off Saul went to do that. But what he really did, he only killed what was weak and anemic. And everything that was worth money, he kept. So Samuel confronts Saul about this. 1 Samuel 15, 16 to 19. Samuel said to Saul, stop, listen to what the Lord told me last night. Well, what did you tell you? Saul asked. Samuel said, although you may think little of yourself and you're not the leader, are you not the leader of all the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you king of Israel and the Lord sent you on a mission and told you, go and completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, till they're all dead. Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? Samuel said, although you may think little of yourself, are you not the leader of Israel? Samuel was more afraid of what his people would say than what God would say. Because he didn't think that he was worthy to lead those people in what God wanted them to do. And his feeling of unworthiness completely destroyed his ability to lead Israel to do what God had planned for them to do. And later on in chapter 15, Samuel says... Then Saul admitted to Samuel, yes, I have sinned. I have disobeyed your instructions and the Lord's command, for I was afraid that the people, afraid of the people, 
and did what they demanded. And now please forgive me my sin and come back to me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said, I will not go back with you. Since you have rejected the Lord's command, he has rejected you as king of Israel. The insignificance that Saul refused to deal with took the kingdom away from him. It destroyed his life. And after that, he became mentally unstable. We all know the story about Saul chasing David around the countryside, and even before that, about feeling horrible and then having David come and play for him so that he could settle his spirit down. And then he chased it all. All of that is a result of insignificance. All of it is a result of him not, not dealing with it when he could. Um, Moses, on the other hand, we're going to take a look at Moses, was the same, except he dealt with his insignificance. In Exodus chapter 3, 9 to 16, Moses has been, spent 40 years in Egypt. Moses has spent 40 years in the wilderness. He's 80 years old. And God is calling him to do what God wants him to do at 80 years old. The plea of Israel's children have come before me, and I've observed the cruel treatment that they have suffered by Egyptian hands. So go. I'm sending you back to Egypt as my messenger to Pharaoh. I want you to gather my people, the children of Israel, and bring them out to Egypt. Okay, watch what Moses said. Who am I to confront Pharaoh to lead Israel's children out of Egypt? You know, it's funny that he would say that. He's the only one that was educated with Pharaoh. He's the only one that knows how Pharaoh thinks. He's the only one that knows the customs of Egypt. The only one that knows how to approach him so that he can actually get to the Pharaoh. But he says, who am I to confront the Pharaoh? God says, verse 12, do not fear Moses. I'll be with you every step of the way. And this will be a sign to you that I am the one who has sent you. After you've led them all out of Egypt, you will return to this mountain and worship God. Moses says, well, let's say I go to the people of Israel and tell them that. You know, if I go, hypothetically, the God of your fathers has sent me to rescue, and I say the God of your fathers has sent me to rescue you, and they reply, well, what's his name then if you know him so well? What should I tell them? God said, I am who I am. And this is so cool. I remember God is taking me through this thing of Saul. For two weeks, I'm reading about Saul, and I'm, and I'm reading about how he let insignificance destroy his life. One morning, I'm awake, and I'm laying on the couch, really early in the morning, and I kind of fell asleep. And I woke up, and God said to me so clear, he said, I am who I am. I heard it, and I thought, well... <laughs> I think maybe I'll get up and I'll read that and see what in the world God's trying to tell me. And so I read this. I am who I am. This is what you should tell the people of Israel. I am has sent me to rescue you. This is what you are to tell Israel's people. The eternal, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the one who has sent me to you. This is my name forevermore and this is the name which all future generations shall remember me. Now that's interesting. All future generations will remember him. That's his name forever. That's still his name. So let's take a look at what I am means. If I can get to the next page. In Hebrew, I am means to exist. But not just to exist, 
but to be active and to express oneself in active being. So it's not just existing, but it's existing and making a difference. So what it's saying is that God is always present. So it doesn't matter what God calls us to do, I am means that he is always with you, no matter how bad or how hard it gets. And God is. That's a pretty amazing statement when you stop and think about it for a bit. God is always with you. No matter what you're going through, no matter how dark it is, when I was sitting on that bench and thinking about suicide, God was there, right beside me. I am was there. God is always present, present with, in, and for his people. And when you invoke the presence of God by calling out to him, you can be certain he is present. His attention is on you, and he comes with his love, his care, his grace, and his power, because he is. Not only does he exist, but he exists to be present and active in your life. That's who he is. That's his name. That's his character. Not only is he alive, but he's down here. He's in this room right now with us, and he's here to help. That's what the word I am means. He's here. So nothing is more foundational to this church than the fact that God is. Nothing is more foundational to your mind, your emotions, and your identity than God is. He's always with you, always. Nothing is more foundational to your life, your marriage, your job, your health, your prosperity than the fact that God is, meaning that he's with you and he's active and he's actively working. The Bible says, Paul said, um, God works for good, for all, the, all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It means that I am is sitting beside you. <laughs> he's also inside of you, by the way, which is really all, uh, cool and a whole other thing. But and, and, and then here's another really cool thing. John 8, 58, and Jesus is talking Pharisees. He's, uh, he's, Jesus is talking, maybe not the Pharisees. I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. So this is not just an Old Testament thing. I am. Jesus is I am. Jesus is God is. Jesus is with you all the time. When it seems like he has completely forsaken you and nothing is going right, and it's the worst place you've ever been in your life, and it seems like suicide is an option, Jesus is, he is there, he is with you, right now, as you're thinking those things. John chapter 15, Jesus said, I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends. Think about that for a minute. I am, God is your friend. Since I have told you everything the Father has told me, you didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. This is my commandment, love each other. None of us found God, by the way. God found us. We didn't, like we often say, this is, the, this is where I found the Lord. No, this is where the Lord found you. Because Jesus picked you. Every one of you individually has been personally picked by God. And that's where your significance comes from. Not from the thoughts in your head that you don't measure up. Your significance isn't in what you do. This was a hard thing for me to learn because my significance wasn't playing a guitar. 
for a long, long, long time because it was the only thing that I thought I could do better than anybody else. And so that became my identity. That became my significance. And then God said, it's time to step away and not play anymore. <laughs> you know, and my significance just went down the tubes. And I had to learn that my significance is because he picked me. Not because I picked him. It's because he picked me. The problem is most of us never see Jesus until it gets so bad that we have no other options. Which is unfortunate. But it's, I guess, part of being human. It's kind of like what we do. Um, here's some cool verses. I'm just, they're not going to be up there because I didn't give them to them. I'm just going to read them off. Zechariah 2.5 says that God is a fire all around you. He is the shining glory within you. Zechariah 2.8 says that whatever, he touch, whatever touches you touches the apple of his eye. Every one of you sitting here, whatever touches you touches the apple of God's eye. That to me is amazing, and it means I better touch you properly. <laughs> you know, James 1.18 says, you are counted as the favorites of all creation. Out of everything God made, you are his favorite. You are God's favorite. This is significant. Isaiah 49.16 says that your name is written on his hands. He cares about you personally. Genesis 1.31 said he looked at all of his creation and said, it is good. Think about that. God looks at you and he says, it is good. And God knows what you did last night, but he says, it is good. It is good. And we see what Moses did, right? Moses started with the same insignificance that I had, probably just as bad as I had it because he had 40 years to, and I had 58. So anyway, <laughs> um, Look what Moses did when he finally realized that he was significant enough for God to never leave his side. Then he knew he could do what God called him to do because it wasn't him doing it. He was just an instrument. God was doing it. When we can get to the point where we, our, our significance from, comes from God, it doesn't matter if we fail. Because if God's going to do it or God's not going to do it, it's his thing to do or not do. If he calls us to do something, we go do it. And if it doesn't turn out the way we want, God will walk us through that. We don't have to worry about how it's going to turn out. At least we shouldn't. Um, Luke 12, 6 and 7. This one it, well, it should go up. What is the value of your soul to God? This is Jesus talking, by the way. Could your worth be defined by any amount of money? God doesn't abandon or forget even the small sparrow he has made. How then would he forget to abandon you? Forget or abandon you. What about the seemingly minor issues of your life? Do they matter to God? Of course they do. So don't you never need to worry. So you don't never need to worry. You are more valuable to God than anything else in this world. The other translations say every hair on your head is numbered. God cares enough about you to know exactly how many hairs are hanging on your head. Or your face in choice. <laughs> or the rest of your body. God knows how many hairs are on your head. He cares enough about you and you are significant enough to him that he knows how many hairs are on your head. So how do we get rid of it? <laughs> how do we get rid of this insignificance? If it's been there as long as mine was, it's not going to be a one time, it's not going to be an overnight thing. At least for me, it wasn't. I shouldn't put God in a box and say it won't be. Maybe he will. Um, for me, it wasn't. It, took me a long, long time to overcome this. And I'm not sure I've overcome it all yet. I have found that with issues, 
in my heart. God reveals them and deals with them layer by layer. It was layer upon layer, precept upon precept, how it was built. Sometimes it's layer upon layer and precept upon precept was how God peels it away because we probably couldn't handle it if he did it all at once. So if you deal with insignificance and you're good and at six months later, it comes up again, it's just another layer. It's not that you didn't get anything the first time. It's not that you didn't get set free the first time. It's that there's another layer and it's time to peel off another layer. Something um, I think we really need to remember because so many of us walk away thinking, I didn't get what God wanted me to get three months ago and um, I need a pierce prayed for me. <laughs> That's not true, you got it. It's just another layer. So I want to look at Psalm 8 for a minute. And this is going to be a quick minute because I'm pretty much done. Um, and I believe this is in the tra Passion Translation. Yahweh, our sovereign God, your glory streams from heavens above, filling the earth with your majesty of your name. People everywhere see your splendor. You've built a stronghold by the songs of children. This is, this is significant. You've built a stronghold by the songs of children. Strength rises up in the course of infants. This kind of praise has the power to shut Satan's mouth. Insignificance is Satan's mouth, by the way. So childlike worship will silence the madness of those who oppose you. It is childlike faith and childlike worship that will silence insignificance from screaming in your head. So when we worship God in the morning here before Megan comes up to speak or whoever's speaking, it's not because we're trying to get you in the mood to get something from God, or that is probably something that happens. It is a tool for you to enter into to fight the enemy in your head. That's what it's designed for. That's one of the main things. It's, it's not so that we can sing in... Yes, it is for that. Sorry, let me rephrase that. The main purpose of childlike praise and worship is to silence the enemy. God protects those who love him. I remember Zoe, my, my granddaughter, name is Zoe. I was thinking about this this morning. When she was about three, I think she was about three, um, Dwight and Sarah drove up, and he was pulling a boat, right? So they get out of the car, and Zoe gets out on Dwight's side, and she, there's, there's a trailer hitch between me and her. And I'm standing at the front door, and she's on the street, and she's trying to get around under over that trailer hitch so she can run and give me a hug. So Dwight picked her up, he put her over on those, and she ran as fast as she possibly could, and it gave me a huge hug. And... It, I, and I remember thinking then that it, it's so satisfying in my heart that she wasn't trying to be cool. She wasn't trying to be um, doing things properly. She just ran to me and gave me a hug, and it melted my heart. Just watching her try to get around that hitch to run to me. And you know what? It's like the same with God. When we run to him, because we want to hug him. When we run to him and we do everything we can to get around the obstacle that's between me and him, it melts his heart. And so often shame will tell us, okay, you screwed up. Before you can run to God, you need to get on your knees and you need to grovel. You need to repent. You need to cry for half an hour. Then maybe you can go to God. And that's, that's so wrong. God wants us to run to him 
like Zoe ran to me without fear of anybody thinking I'm not cool, without fear of any, any other thing or anybody's opinion of me. God wants me to run to him. And that worship is how you fight the devil in your head. <laughs> you know, um, let's just, I'll just read the rest of Psalm 8. The word strength there, by the way, means a strength which fiercely holds its ground and does not give up an inch. That's the strength we have from God. When we run to him with childlike faith, it doesn't give an inch. Verse 3, look at the splendor of your skies, your creative genius glowing in the heavens. When I gaze upon the moon and your stars mounted like jewels in their settings, I know you are the fascinating artist who fashioned it all. But I have to ask this question. Why would you bother with a puny mortal man or care about human beings? It's interesting that this is put in here in the middle of how great God is and how powerful he is and how much he loves us. There's a little insignificance line here. And I think God is trying to tell us that if you've got that, it's probably going to come up in the middle of your worship because you're going to think you're not worthy to worship God. There's so many people who think that. But Jesus makes us worthy, right? It's the blood of Jesus that, made, that makes us worthy. And then he says, why do you care about human beings? Yet what honor you have given men created a little lower than Elohim. The, the, most translations say a little lower than the angels. A little lower than, the, a little lower than God himself, sorry. Crowned with glory and magnificence, you've delegated them to rulership over all you've made. With everything under their authority, placing earth itself under the feet of your image bearers. All he created, ordered, and every living thing of the earth, sky, and sea. The wildest beasts that all move on the paths of the sea. Everything is in submission to Adam's sons. Yahweh, our sovereign God, your glory streams from heaven above, filling the earth with the majesty of your name. And people everywhere see your splendor. You battle insignificance three ways which we've talked about one you repent <laughs> right because if you have if you're believing insignificance you're believing God's not enough and that's a lie and that requires repentance that's the bottom line two you battle it with worship you worship him and three let's take some of the verses that I've just read about how important you are to God and meditate on those Bring them up and think about them over and over and over again, especially when your head is screaming that you're not worth anything. Take those verses and just say them over and over again. Um, it's probably best just to say the verses and not try and argue or fight with the devil because he always has an answer for you. I think Anita mentioned that last week. But so use the word, use praise and worship and repentance. And those three things, God will slowly remove it from your heart. Give God your heart. Tell, ask him to take it away. There's nothing you can do to fix your heart, by the way. Um, God made it. God knows how to fix it. We didn't make it. We have no idea how to fix it. <laughs> um, you can give it to God, and God will restore it and, 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 and fix it. He'll remove the insignificance if you ask him to. And he will replace it with significance. As you read the word and find out how significant you actually are, it gets embedded in you. It will replace all the insignificance that's hiding in your head. So I would just like to, at this point, um, 
I just want to pray for everybody. Um, I'm going to pray, you know, repentance because we all have dealt with insignificance and we pretty much all need to repent from it. Um, but those who have it strongly repent from it. Repent means turn around. Don't think that way anymore. Go the other direction. That's what it means. So when we repent, we apologize to God for believing the lie. And then we decide that we're going to not think that way anymore. And that's when the battle, <laughs> that's when your battle is going to begin. But you can do it because I am is in you. Father, thank you for everything you've given us. Thank you for this morning. Father, we repent this morning for believing that you're not enough. Father, we repent for believing that we would ever think that you're not going to stand on the waves with us. Lord, we repent for ever thinking that you don't know what you're doing because I feel bad. Father, we pray that you would, you would move in our hearts. We give you our hearts this morning to cleanse, to clean out, Father, and you know so much of what's in there. So we just leave it with you and we ask you to work your miracle in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. For more information about Embassy Church, visit our website at embassychurch.ca.